0: Hi there, you're listening to What Are You Going To Do With That? The podcast that introduces you to the young researchers and the guests of the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law Under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. I'm Dani, a PhD student here at the university, and I want to know what road these scholars have taken to get where they are today and how bumpy their ride was. Sitting next to me today is Dr. Yaniv Rosnay, who is a senior lecturer at the Harry Radziner School of Law at the Interdisciplinary Center, or in short, the IDC Herzliya. He focuses on comparative constitutional law, constitutional theory, legisprudence, and public international law. His work is published in too many journals to list here, but a few examples are the American Journal of Comparative Law and the International and Comparative Law Quarterly. Yaniv's research has been presented at leading American universities, but also at Hong Kong University, the National University Singapore, Queen Mary, and many more. His book, Unconstitutional Constitutional Amendments The Limits of Amendment Powers, was published in 2017 and awarded in 2018 with the inaugural International Society for Public Law, the ICANN's Book Prize. In that same year, Yaniv was awarded the IDC Excellence in Teaching Award, and in 2019, he was included in the Marcus list of Israel's 40 under 40 in the category of researchers. Wow, Yaniv! Quite an impressive track record. If you think I maybe even missed something important, I hope that you can bring it up during our conversation. But first, let me pour my signature drink before we dig in. A bit for you and a bit for me. You can have as much as you like. I know you're giving a lecture after this one, so you might not go too fast. Cheers. Cheers. I'm very happy that you're here today. I've heard a lot about you and I'd like to get to know the person behind the title a little bit more. So let me ask you some short questions that require really short answers, right? Here we go. First question What app on your phone do you use most?
1: Oh, all right. The Gmail one. Gmail? Yes.
0: Mostly work? Yes. Work. All right.
1: Yeah, constantly. Sick. So the Gmail one, Google, probably to search for stuff, and the news. Maybe Auretz and YNet and others. Yes.
0: All right. That's nothing too exciting. common. No, no funny things in between.
1: Well, uh, I guess also Facebook and Twitter throughout the day. Although one of the New Year's resolutions that I have is to try and be less on social media so I can have more time on my real work
0: on the Google app, uh, Gmail. Uh, Google Scholar. Right. <laughs> All right. Let's go to the second question. What TV show are you currently watching?
1: TV show, ah, okay. So, uh, my wife Avital and I—we don't really have a lot of time to watch television, but we do have our series that sometimes we record and then maybe late at night, if we have time, we put on TV. Uh, usually, I fell asleep uh, in the middle, but uh, <laughs> we try. And we've just finished this series. I don't. I, honestly, I don't even know what's what's it called. It's about. Why women killed their husband or something like that?
0: Is that an uh, American show? Or? Yes,
1: yes, it is. Uh, it's uh, on uh, yes, uh, and it's a wonderful, actually, it's great series.
0: You shouldn't uh, fall asleep halfway through that if you're watching with your wife.
1: Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Although I'm not the the prototype of the husbands, there, so I'm I won't say All
0: right, next one. What was the best birthday gift that you've ever received? could
1: be a tough one. It is a tough one.
0: Or you have to give a diplomatic Okay, no, that's answer.
1: actually an easy one. So for my 30th birthday, uh, Avital, again, my wife, gave me a, a present, which was a surprise. I wasn't sure what, what is it. She said, let's go to Ramadhan, uh, to this uh, apartment. And I said, well, what's it going to be in this apartment? It's going to be a, a massage or a cooking class. What's it going to be? And we're getting there. Uh, the owner opens the door and then... 20 small pug dogs run towards me. Uh, So actually, we got a pug dog uh, for my 30th uh, birthday. You got to choose one. So I chose, yeah. She already chose one for me. He was waiting and he was the cutest one. And yeah, so that's my dog.
0: And he's still with you? He's still
1: with us, yes.
0: That's very nice. All right. And then are you a very organized person or are you one of those naughty professors?
1: Uh, Very good. So I think it depends. When it comes to work, wise i'm super organized my office is super organized my projects are organized my projects are organized when it comes to my personal life or anything that is other than work then it's very convenient for me to be very clumsy and not to remember stuff because i know that avital remembers everything so again I'm. so you're allowed
0: to exactly and that way you can balance it out a little bit yes all right last one of the short questions What is something you think everyone should do at least once in their lives?
1: Everyone? Or are we talking about scholars? Or what could you
0: advise or recommend? It's really up to you.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, that is a tough
1: one. But okay, if I'm just, if I'll try to be serious for a second, there is no doubt, I think, that in retrospect, my decision to to go abroad and and study abroad to do the LLM was super enriching. It was a wonderful experience. Even if I hadn't continued to to do the doctorate, I would recommend anyone who can do it to spend a year abroad. It doesn't have to be to study. To spend a year abroad, to live somewhere else, I think is a super enriching uh, experience, and I would recommend it to anyone.
0: So it's really the experience of something different and something new. Yes. All right. Thank you for sharing, Eve. I'm very curious also about your work. Can you tell me a bit about why you are with us today? How are you affiliated with the Minerva Centre?
1: All right, yeah, so um, so basically my, my, my doctorate research focused on limits to constitutional change, whether there are certain things that cannot be amended in constitutions or whether certain constitutional amendments can be either illegitimate or even unconstitutional in a way. And I got to the Minerva Center for a specific study that focused on limits to constitutional change during uh, times of emergency. Or under extreme conditions because in some constitutions you cannot change the Constitution uh, during for example wartime or under occupation so uh, in a way I managed to combine these two issues first limits to control change and the extreme conditions into one research which is I'm ashamed to say is still in the in the, pro- in the process I'm still working on it but hopefully uh, 2020 will be the final year where it will be published.
0: How long have you been working on this?
1: Well, I started doing it in 2015, but it's not the only thing I've been doing since. Of
0: course, as I just listed all of the other things you did in the meantime. I'm not surprised.
1: And three kids, which we haven't mentioned.
0: Of course, and the wife, but she seems to juggle everything very well Thanks. in the personal life. <laughs> all right. And then from the Minerva Center, how did you get to the IDC Herzliya? Uh,
1: yeah, so... um. I, I knew that I want to be in Israel uh, 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 and I, mean, I grew up here and this was the, the the aim to find an academic position in Israel uh, and I, I did uh, the PhD uh, in London at the LSE uh, and then the postdoc here at the Minerva Center in addition to uh, a postdoc position at NYU for some time uh, and then I just applied to the Israeli job market now in Israel it's very different maybe than in some, I don't know, European or American universities, there are not so many formalities. In the sense, usually you don't have call for applicants and please submit your nomination till so-and-so date with these following documents, as you can find in many European universities. You need to be proactive. If you want to be in the Israeli job market, you need to be proactive and send emails to, I don't know, maybe the deans of the different law schools and introduce yourself and say, I'm very interested in finding an academic position. This is me, so and so. Uh, And then they will reply whether they have an opening or they don't have an opening and how to uh, submit an application. Uh, And that's what I did. And if I can be honest, at least for me, this was not so, this was not such an easy process. If you think about it, I was in the job market for about three rounds uh, let's say three years uh, until i found uh, until i got this position at idc and it's quite a frustrating process because you submit your applications to various law schools and you get sometimes you get letters of rejection sometimes you don't get response at all which is the most insulting thing they don't even respond I'm saying now it's 2019. I've submitted my applications in 2014. I'm still waiting for some of the letters from certain law schools.
0: It's very and annoying because you put in a lot of effort yourself. I mean, it's, you fine is is your exactly. say, it's fine oh, sorry, to get no. Exactly, it's fine to get no. We're not looking for someone.
1: It doesn't even have to be a personal phone from the dean. Even an email says thank you, we've considered your application, but it doesn't work. Uh, would be fine. Uh, so this is one. Quite a frustrating thing. The second one is that every letter of of rejection is uh, like a punch in the stomach. Right? Oh, I've been working so hard, uh, trying to do everything that that you know that the book, the textbook requires. Uh, why is it not good enough? Uh, everyone asks himself, and uh, so it's quite a frustrating process. Uh, now, uh, I, I I mean I don't want to sound too negative, but first the Israeli job market is very very. Competitive It is super competitive for each position. You have about more or less 40 applicants many of whom Graduated from top uh, law schools. I don't know in the US or, uh, UK etc. And it's a very competitive market You need a lot of luck you need good timing and you need to be in the in a good subject also I mean I was doing constitutional law Which is uh, quite an over overly packed? subject i mean if someone is doing tax law if you finish your doctorate uh, in a good university and your your subject area is tax law you have much better chances of finding a position than someone who's doing constitutional law or public international so this is also something that people who thinking of doing a phd i think need to take into consideration now in the third year where i finally got the offer i did a job talk uh, at various places and then I got the offer from IDC, which for me was the best thing. I mean, this is my dream position. I, I wouldn't change it for anything.
0: The IDC is a well-known institution. It has a good name and also the law faculty. It so. has
1: a good reputation, but for me, it was even more than that because I, uh, I, I'm a graduate uh, of IDC. I did my, my, um, uh, my first law degree uh, at IDC. So this is my alma mater. So I, I knew the, I knew the place and I knew the professors, so I, I felt very attached to that place. I was, uh, that's why I was super happy to um, get the offer. But even, even there, it, uh, it wasn't very easy to get it.
0: All right, let's take a, a short step back. What made you go on for those three years to keep looking for that job that you wanted?
1: So that's, I think, a great question because I have many friends who simply either didn't have the stamina or, or said it's not worth it. And after the first or second attempt, said I will just go and look for something else, either a think tank or go to work in a law firm or um, go to work with the government, etc. I think that I had first a very strong will. I I knew that this is what I want to do. I want to be in academia. I thought that it suits me. Uh, I didn't see myself doing anything else. And it was such a strong will that Avital and I said to ourselves that if this doesn't work out in Israel, then I would just look uh, abroad. And uh, I wouldn't say funny enough, but uh, uh, perhaps even frustratingly enough, it would have been easier for me to get a position elsewhere than in Israel.
0: Easier, why? Uh,
1: because there are more uh, positions, there are more openings uh, in very good places in the UK, in Hong Kong, in, in other law schools, which are excellent. So I think that if if Israel didn't work out, unfortunately, I would probably consider uh, leaving, maybe not permanently, but leaving uh, uh, the country abroad for an academic position.
0: All right. Well, we're very happy that you have a position here in Israel with us (laughs) and that you get to visit us so easily. All right. So we've talked about a few of your struggles, which um, most recently was finding the job. Was there anything else that you've encountered? You said as a tip for others, it's important to have the abroad experience. You've studied in various places, you said in uh, Israel, in the U.S., and also in the, in the U.K., only in the U.S. No,
1: so I, I did my doctorate at the U.K., and then I was a visiting researcher in Princeton and did my postdoc at NYU. So I, I tried to combine U.K. and U.S., yeah. All uh, right,
0: but was it difficult for you to change universities, to get used to different cultures in different countries, or maybe to change slightly your topic or um, what you're focusing on?
1: So I don't think it was too difficult professionally-wise. I mean, I did the same research, same topics, etc. It was very interesting to meet different people, different scholars with different approaches that, yes, but it was mostly difficult personally-wise because we uh, sacrificed a lot for me to to do all these kind of trips. So uh, Avital and I lived in London for a while, uh, and when I flew to do a semester in Princeton, we did this long-distance relationship first semester. And again, when I did my postdoc at NYU, uh, we did again a long distance relationship and this time with kids first semester. It was super difficult. It was probably much more difficult for Avital uh, than for me. Uh, But it was a big sacrifice and not everyone can do it.
0: All right. But now you would say it was worth it?
1: Yes, of course. I I mean, I'm I'm very happy. I I don't regret anything that that I did. Um, But I think that people need to understand if, if they want to Tick all the boxes, then uh, uh, there's a lot to sacrifice, uh, no doubt. I think if I'm thinking of maybe tips for future scholars, one thing that I I think or I guess made a big difference for me was the book contract. So as you mentioned, my my book was published in 2017, and I think when you're in the job market and you already have, you don't need to have the actual book, but if you have a book contract with a well-known or prestigious uh, publisher like OUP, CUP, etc. I think this gives you uh, a lot of extra points that others don't have. Because now the, the bar is very high. In the past, if you had one publication, that was something very nice. Nowadays, if I look at the CV of those who are in the academic job market, it's simply crazy. They have five, six, eight publications in really top law journals and then you say, okay, what else What else do you need? Uh, so I think here a book or at least a book contract can give you some extra points uh, uh, in this uh, very high uh, competitive uh, market.
0: All right, so you've talked about your uh, book contracts and you've also published quite a lot in different journals, as I've mentioned. So can you tell us a little bit about how you can publish something in a nice journal as a tip
1: for our listeners? So um, uh, thank you for this question. Uh, I think that I, as a scholar, I did various mistakes that in, in, in retrospect, I think they maybe were uh, mistakes. I don't know. I published quite a lot. And I published stuff uh, since I was a, a, a LLB student uh, and a master's student. And I didn't really care about the placement. I mean, uh, I, I, I submitted, for example, my uh, LLM thesis. Uh, which was in uh, the topic of, of um, armed conflict. Uh, I submitted it to this competition, uh, and then it was in California, and it, was, uh, it, it, it won the first place, and then it told me, oh, so we're going to publish it in the California Journal of International, which I was very happy as an LLM student. wow, you're really going to publish my paper? Wow, that, that's awesome. In retrospect, I realized that this is the California Bar Journal, and it's not actually ranked, and academically, it doesn't count. And I also publish various things in Israeli law journals that are not highly ranked. And nowadays, when some scholars look at my CV or when they talk to and say, oh, why did you publish this and this article in that or that journal? Now, to be honest, at that time, I didn't really care. I, I was very happy to put my things and my thoughts out there. And to and have I something
0: on your resume, Exactly,
1: right? to have something on the resume. And, and you, well, you publish things for various reasons. I didn't think about it academically-wise, not to mention I've never bothered to check the ranking of different journals, etc. Uh, and I think that in retrospect, my suggestion to young scholars would be to uh, prioritize quality over quantity. So I think it's better to have two or three articles in the best journals you can have than have two. Twenty articles in very low-ranked journals, and people don't think about it. You know, you want to put your things out there. So I think this uh, may be one thing that I, uh, if I had thought about it earlier, I might have done differently. Because uh, from what I hear from other colleagues, from other colleagues, sometimes it's better not to publish than publish a piece in a ba- even if you think it's a good piece. Uh, to publish it in a bad uh, law journal, and I'm I'm quite happy with the th- even the things that I published in low-ranked journals. I really liked like it. I appreciate if I can talk about my own stuff. I, I really like those pieces. I don't regret writing them, uh, but I think that at least as, when it comes to academic uh, reputation, uh, now in retrospect, maybe it, it, it is better to wait and try to put it in a good placement. And if you can't publish it in a good place, then Maybe it's better not to publish it at all. Uh, it's sad, I think, but if you think strategically, maybe that's the wise, uh, the wiser thing to do.
0: All right. So you've already mentioned that in this new year, you're thinking of using less social media, right? But why is that? What is your experience with it? And have you used social media academically or only personally?
1: Ah, oh, so that's. That's a wonderful question. So first, yes, uh, being a comparative constitutional scholar, I actually use uh, social media quite a lot as a platform for uh, uh, professional purposes. So, for example, I can find or uh, or just post call for papers for different interesting symposia or um, uh, conferences. And also, if I have a question or a specific question about jurisdictions which I'm not familiar with, then I can ask my friends. I have good Professional scholars, friends from different places in the world, and I can ask them for, uh, for questions, etc. So I actually lose. Uh, I use social media quite a lot. I was having my uh, thoughts uh, whether to continue to be so active on social media, simply because I find it that I put a lot of time and energy in uh, discussing again constitutional questions, but that are in the uh, 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 in the public uh, or everyday agenda. Uh, First, as I said, because it's time consuming and uh, I always question myself whether it's not better to use this time to do my real academic work uh, instead. There are, of course, a lot of uh, benefits and I am trying not to stay at the high level of abstraction of here's high theory, but to make my ideas and research accessible to other people, because I think we have real life implications to, to what we do and what we write. So I think that social media and writing op-eds in, in, in newspapers, etc., uh, is one way to channel our research from simply being in the ivory tower and make it accessible to, to laymen and other people, and maybe even to influence uh, policymakers, etc. But I think the, the, the crucial point here is is balance, to have a good balance. Uh, I don't think you want to be much just on the media and to go on TV and radio all the time. Uh, but you also uh, need to have your voice heard, not to be only in the academic sphere of academic journals, etc. So I think there is um, there should be a nice uh, balance between the two. There is one thing that I would recommend for young scholars. Uh, there is uh, what we call professional blogs. And I think that if There are high-profile and and with high-quality blogs, for example, EGIL for international law, or ICONNECT for public and constitutional law. I think if you're a young scholar and you can write a very nice, polished and uh, uh, novel post regarding your own study, your own research, uh, I think that posting such a blog post could be actually a very good way have your name out there so people would be familiar with you what you're working on Uh, i found that blog posts are read obviously uh, read by many more people than anyone would ever read your uh, article in a very distinguished uh, uh, journal so I, i would certainly recommend that but again i think this would have to be limited to very good and professional blogs and i think it's better than having your own personal blog We can just write about anything, but then you don't really sit and consider things thoroughly before you put them out there in the air. So uh, I would certainly recommend using such professional blogs.
0: All right. Well, you've just mentioned that you've been abroad also by yourself, and that at the time you already had your wife and even children. And we hear this a lot that um, scholars, PhD students, postdocs, young researchers are often very lonely. And uh, depression is a very common thing amongst these scholars. So if you think back about it, what helped you through that time? Was there any family, friends, colleagues, maybe supervisors that helped you go through that time?
1: Yeah, I think that's quite a well-known phenomenon. Uh, at least for me, it didn't really bother me personally. I mean, I'm, uh, I was very happy to be alone with my books and articles and, and to sit for 10, 12, 14 hours a day just me and my uh, uh, books and cases. Uh, but there is something frustrating where you finally find the good quotation that you were looking for. Or, oh, I found this amazing judgment from the Czech Republic. But then you have no one to share it with because no one apart from you actually cares about this project or unconstitutional amendments. So who, who cares about that? So I, I understand why people feel that this is quite a lonely uh, process. I think that here... To have good colleagues, I mean, we at the LSE, we were a very small group of uh, PhD students. We were five and quite a very close group. So we had our weekly meetings and we used to go out quite a lot. And I think this was quite meaningful uh, for me uh, to know that I'm not alone in my process. But also you mentioned supervisors. I think the idea of supervisory, it's a um, super important aspect of this process. I was very lucky to have two wonderful supervisors, uh, uh, Martin Locklin and, and Thomas Poole from the LSE, and they were extremely caring and supportive in, in many ways, more ways than I can, uh, than I can even express. Uh, they were always there for me for anything I needed, whether it was personal or professional, and uh, there is no doubt that this is a, a very central aspect of being a doctoral student.
0: Right, it's good to hear that, that you weren't completely alone then. And sometimes it's also really nice to be.
1: But I think if I can just follow up this, I think if you're a PhD student and you have problems with your supervisor, I think it's crucial to pause and question that relationship. Sometimes it's better to cut that relationship at an earlier stage uh, and try to change a supervisor or think maybe, there's, maybe there is maybe there is a need to add another supervisor uh, rather than sticking with a problematic one for a long time, and then you realize after four or five years that something is wrong, and then it may be too late. Uh, so I think both the supervisor and the student, the doctor, uh, the doctor and student, need all the time to uh, reflect upon the relationship.
0: Did you have only good supervisors? Yes, I guess you don't I'm have sorry. Another yes, answer to it. I'm sorry. I
1: had only good supervisors.
0: That's very good. All right, so let's move on to the other side of the coin. You already said that um, you had the book published and that helped you very much to get the job that you really wanted in Israel. But what do you consider your biggest achievements?
1: So I'll tell you a story here. I I did, as I mentioned, my my topic was limits to constitutional change. And I remember I started my my, uh, PhD in 2010 and in 2012, I participated in this uh, doctorate conference at Yale, which is a wonderful conference, and I recommend any PhD student to apply and and attend. And you meet a lot of other PhD students from all around the world. And I was in this uh, panel with another friend uh, who did his PhD at Yale with Bruce Ackerman, who's the most famous constitutional professor in the world. And the topic was exactly the same topic as my topic. So if you're a PhD student and you know that there's another PhD student who writes on the exact same thing, uh, you panic. Uh, of course, uh, after talking to him and we we're good friends, uh, we, I realized that we have uh, uh, different uh, uh, studies in a way, or we're not focusing on similar uh, uh, topics or methods, so it was fine, but um, uh, uh, at first I panicked. And uh, since I was already two years into the PhD and I already collected a lot of materials, I read a lot and I've written many things, I, I've decided that I think it's time to start and put things out there to the broader world to know that, okay, here I am, I'm, this is what I'm working on. And I, I've decided to uh, publish an article uh, on unconstitutional amendments, but an article that would be more descriptive than revealing parts of the theory that I would then develop in the doctorate. And um, this was a comparative uh, article. And I uh, then consulted uh, a professor, a famous professor for for comparative law. Where shall I send it? And she said, this was Kim Lane Shepley, she said, the best journal in the world for comparative stuff is the American Journal of Comparative Law. But know this, they reject over 91 or 92% of the things that are uh, submitted to them. Uh, and uh, And, well, I was... Still a very young scholar. And I said, shall I do it? Shall I? And I said, okay, what do I have to lose? I mean, I'll I'll send it there. The worst case scenario is that it wouldn't get accepted. And then I can try somewhere else. I I submitted my paper. This was a 60-page long uh, article. And then after three months or so, I went to peer review. I get this email from the editor. Okay. It It passed the peer review. You're accepted. We just want you to have some minor revisions in the conclusion. And then that's it. So I I couldn't believe it at the time. I I was super happy. And I think that the lesson is, first, you need to be confident with what you do. And you need to aim high. You need to aim as higher as you can. And, uh, you know, worst case, you can start going down the ladder. But don't be afraid to aim high. So I think, at least at the time, this was my biggest achievement uh, as as a doctorate student. All
0: right. Congratulations. I'll drink to that. Sounds very good. Cheers. So I think we can wrap it up because you've already given us quite a lot of tips too. So the last thing what I want to know is what's your next project?
1: Oh, that's great. So um, so one project that I've just um, actually finished is another book with a, a wonderful professor from University of Texas, Gary Jacobson. And we finished a book on constitutional revolution. And this is forthcoming in a few months with a um, Yale University Press uh, and I'm very happy and excited about this project because uh, Professor Jacobson was a huge source of inspiration for me during my my own writings and when he approached me about this project I was very honored and, and excited and uh, I'm, I'm I was super happy about this project it also took us about three years even more than three years to to finish this book but I think this book sits very well with my earlier book. Uh, So I'm building here something that is nice and current that I'm, I'm very happy with. So this is one thing. And now I've started another book project that I call We the Limited People. And the idea is to see whether there are any boundaries to constitution making, to the people's constituent power in a way, which is related but slightly different from my earlier work. So I'm very excited to work on this. Uh, I don't know when it will be finished, but this is what I'm working on now.
0: Something new and exciting. Yeah. Very good. All right. To wrap up, I'd like to ask you another set of short questions. Are you ready?
1: All right. Let's do it.
0: What was the most important conference you've been to?
1: Oh, so I attended the American Society of Comparative Law annual work in progress workshop, uh, which was by far the best academic workshop I've ever attended it's not easy to get accepted they accept a very limited number of papers every year but then they put a lot of effort on every paper so you get two highly distinguished professors commenting on your paper and you have one hour or an hour and a half of roundtable of all the participants in the workshop just talking on your own paper and you do not participate you do not say anything until the end. In the end, you have 10 minutes or 15 minutes out of this hour and a half that you can respond, ask questions. But this, is, the idea is to have maximum feedback and minimum pressure. You can just say, thank you very much, everyone. I'm not going to answer anything, and it's fine. Uh, or you can just ask questions. So for me, this was the best conference I've ever attended.
0: So it might be hard to get in, but we're going to apply anyway because exactly. we're aiming high. All right. Which scholarship was hardest to get?
1: The LSE doctor scholarship was difficult. Although I, I'm not very informed because I'm not sure about the process, so I, I can't really give an informed answer to, about that. But I think probably the one I, I'm familiar with was the Modern Law Review scholarship, uh, which is a scholarship that uh, I don't know maybe around ten students from all the UK uh, get. But you need to pass various levels. So first, you need. To have uh, there's an internal competition, and you need the dean of your own law school to recommend you, and usually they recommend one or two people. And then there's a national wide competition within the UK. So I think that's very highly competitive. It was very difficult to get it, but it was very rewarding in a
0: way. All right. And what do you consider to be your best find? My best find, or anything new that you've discovered in your research or the conclusion of your book?
1: Ah. Okay, so I think the thing I like most about my project, when you talk about limits to constitutional change, and if you read papers uh, or or if you go to uh, to a conference about this topic, usually you have the usual suspects. So when they talk about eternity clauses in constitutions, they give Germany and the German Grundgesetz the basic law with its eternity clause. Or if they talk about implicit limits to constitutional change, usually they give India as the example. And one of the things that I'm quite happy that I found was that the idea of limits of criminal change is not that unique or extreme. Actually, it exists in a very long list of constitutions, and maybe 40% of all constitutions include explicit eternity clauses. And there are many other courts that have decided that there are implicit limits of change, not only in India, but in many other uh, uh, jurisdictions, such as, I don't know, Colombia and Taiwan and Belize and... And Bangladesh and, and other places uh, so I think this is one of the things I I was very happy to find.
0: Very interesting and hopefully you'll find some more in the next book <laughs> So who has impressed you most with what they've accomplished? Uh,
1: you mean in general?
0: Yes, maybe hmm. an idol or someone you've always looked up to
1: So I think I can easily think of um, two names uh, uh, two or even three so one person that I I've, I've was very intrigued by his findings, is, is Tom Ginsburg, Professor Tom Ginsburg from Chicago, uh, who does uh, many large and large numbers, researchers on constitutions, and he found super interesting things that you've never imagined. So, for example, when I read his book, co-authored book, on the endurance of national constitutions, uh, you, we always think of constitutions as, as something that lasts for many years, something almost permanent. And then in the book, uh, they show that Actually, half of world constitutions die when they're 19.
0: Okay. So
1: many countries simply replace their constitutions, totally replace their constitution, I'm not talking about amendments, uh, every 19 years. Uh, And that that was quite astonishing for me to to read. Other scholars that I highly admire are, again, Gary Jacobson, whom I was working on, and Kim Lane who do comparative constitutional law, but very deep and thorough uh, analysis of jurisdictions. Uh, so they go deep to find trends, but they also uh, understand the, the context, the political context and the social and cultural context, which I uh, admire a lot. And my own PhD supervisor, uh, uh, Martin Laughlin, who does a lot of history of ideas work. So in a sense, when he was, when he was writing about the concept of constituent power, he wasn't just writing about it, I don't know, philosophically, but really tracing the historical roots of this concept, which is something that I uh, relate to very much.
0: All right. And then the last one, how do you relax after a hard day of work?
1: I don't see I don't see any contradiction between scholarly work and relaxation. My own relaxation is to if I sit and write and and read, uh, I do it for pleasure. So I do, even if I I don't tell it to IDC people, but even if I hadn't got any money for what I do, uh, I would still probably do the same thing. Or if, as I put it differently, uh, if I, I would now win, I don't know, the lottery uh, uh, with, I don't know, 10 million shekels or dollars, uh, never mind, I would probably still have the same daily schedule as I do now. Uh, so I probably wouldn't change anything.
0: All right, well, thank you very much for joining us today, Anif, and also to the audience for listening. Keep coming back to the link where you found this podcast for more episodes will follow soon. I'll pour you another sip, and then you can tell me more about the next book, because it sounded very interesting. Would you like some more? No, I'm good. <laughs> I'll have a little
1: bit i have more. a presentation later.
0: That's right. What are you going to talk about?
1: I'm going to talk about who will save the redheads towards a bully theory of judicial review and the protection of democracy.
0: Alright. And how much time do you have to talk about that?
1: I think uh, 30 minutes and then we'll have another discussion for around an hour, I guess. That's what
0: so what is the one-minute summary?
1: Okay. The one-minute summary is this. Courts have an important role in protecting democracy. The problem is that nowadays courts are under extreme political pressure. And what should courts do? That's a big question. Uh, when there's a political pressure and there's risk of political backlash, should courts go into the bunker, be strategic and say, okay, I will just lower my head for now and maybe the storm will pass? Or do they need to confront the political branches? And what I try to say is that we need to think about that as if we're facing a bully. If you give, in the first day in school, if you give the bully your wallet, the bullying doesn't end there and the bully wants more and more, and we just simply won't stop. Likewise, in context of democratic erosion, if courts go down the bunker, this usually didn't help to protect democracy. But likewise, if you confront the bully and punch punching between his eyes, this usually uh, is not such a good solution, because the bully is usually stronger and bigger. So what you need to do, I think, is some kind of a middle ground, which I call business as usual. Uh, You don't need to bend down before the bully, but you also don't need to be overly aggressive and outside to attack. You need to stand firm, stand for yourself. Uh, But an important aspect in bullying theory is third parties who's around. Uh, If you have people uh, in the playground with you to help you face the bully, that's important. So, likewise, in democracy, courts on their own cannot protect democracy. They need civil society, they need the political branches, and they need the people, uh, without which, Courts alone cannot save democracy.
0: Very interesting. Very curious to the next hour. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much.